0: Well, hey, everybody. The excitement is growing for the uh, all nighter we have ahead of us tomorrow night. I thought it was going to be a late night when it said 2 a.m. bedtime, and then people informed me that was only a suggestion. (coughs) Yeah, we're in for a load of fun, us older people. Yeah, some of us need to sleep. Yeah, if I include myself in that, I don't know what it means for other people. But uh, hey, it's been a lot of—it's uh, been a blessing and a lot of fun being with you guys this week. And um, it's especially been fun as the week goes on, getting to sit down with uh, some of you individually and get to hear some of your stories. And what I'm most encouraged about is um, hearing how God has been faithful to do what He always said He would do. But I guess I'm not surprised. But it's always good to see Him. Um, doing what he told us to expect him to do, which is to use his word to heal his people. And so it's been really uh, encouraging to me to hear how uh, he has been getting through all the, all, all the obstacles we have in our hearts and our ears um, to bless us this week. So praise him for that. Uh, and for the uh, brothers and sisters up here leading us in worship, um, thank you. It's been Woo! such a blessing uh, to prepare to hear the word. Um, The fact that we have a term called worship leader presumes we need leading in worship. It might not be, or maybe correct worship might not be intuitive for us. And so they're not just uh, leading us in music, but they're taking us by the hand and teaching us how to worship God. And so um, I don't know about you, but my heart has been warmed um, and brought to the Lord even before uh, we hear from him. And so thanks for y'all. We're going to be talking about the end of exile tonight, home improvement, the end of exile. Uh, We spent... Five talks now, five nights together, talking about this life as elect exiles, here in a place of exile. And tonight we're, we're fast forwarding till the end of time. Uh, and this is what uh, Jesus shows John uh, about the end of time and the end of exile. And without any further ado, I'll, I want to read the passage and pray and we'll get into it. This is uh, Revelation chapter 21. If you have a Bible, it's the, probably the last page of your Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. This is the Apostle John speaking. Then, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, or look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, or from our perspective, He will dwell with us. And He will be with us, His people. And He Himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne said behold or look I'm making everything new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it's done I am the alpha and the omega I am the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have been a faithful shepherd to us. You always are, and we've seen you do that again this week, and so we give you thanks. All credit, all praise, all gratitude goes to you. Uh, It was a result of your decision to bless us, that we've been blessed. We pray tonight that you would do that again. We pray that in the small groups after, you would stir our imaginations, move our hearts, make dots connect between your word and our lives. Uh, that we might bring you glory by trusting you and loving you, we who are loved first by you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, a few years ago, my wife Anna and I bought the house that we live in now, and uh, we've done a ton of renovation work on it, mostly ourselves. That's kind of, someone today was asking what my talent was, and I was like, Well about the only talent I have is like construction stuff and home renovation, and I didn't want to do that at the show tonight and bring the home down on top of us, but... That's what we've been doing for the past three years, and uh, let me help you envision what this house looked like three years ago when we bought it. It was If you've seen the movie, like Austin Powers, or uh, that 70s show when you were little, that's what our house was like. It was like perfectly shagadelic. Some of us have experienced that, yeah. So here's what it looked like. It was like pink, I kid you not, it was pink shag carpet on the floor with brown wooden walls like this kind of paneling over here. The bedroom was brown carpet with school bus yellow walls. There was carpet even around the toilets in the house. the The kitchen cabinets were carpeted. I don't know. the The previous owner's name was is a curse word around our house. But this house, uh, we got it for super cheap because no one else could wanted to mess with that or could see past it, or they probably had more money than we did, and so they just moved on. But But we bought that house, and then we started meticulously tearing everything out, or tearing most things out, and then uh, renovating the house. Um, And it's still a work in progress, but it's getting there. And our goal in this whole process was to turn our house into a home. And did you know there's a difference between a house and a home? They're not the same thing, you know? Uh, A house is four walls with a roof on top of it, right? A home is so much more than a house. A home is... Uh, A home is a place where you know the smells, you fit, you belong. You don't have to be on at home. People know you and they get you. Home is a place of memories, of laughter, um, of nostalgia. Home is a place of refuge. When you guys get off to college, home is the place you're going to want to go when hard things happen. Or home is the place you want to run back to when life starts to crumble. Home is where you have home field advantage. That's what home is, and it's very different than just a house. And so Ann and I moved into a house, and we had a very particular vision of how we were going to turn that house into a home where, where we wanted to live and raise our kids and have friends over and do life. And in order to get it from a house to a home, we had to go through this painstaking process pretty much every day for the past three years. Every single object in that house had to go through this process. We would pick it up or look at it, and we would make a decision. Does this thing, whether it's like some really ugly doorknob or some light fixture or outlet cover, does this fit our vision for what our home is going to be? Does this fit with what we're going to do to this to make it a home? And if it fit, if it was redeemable, we kept it. And it, it would need a lot of, like, repainting and refurbishing and cleaning and that kind of thing, but we kept it, and we used it in our new home. It's still there. But if it was uh, unredeemable, if it was incompatible with the home that we were building, if it didn't fit, uh, then it, I drove it to the landfill. We took it to the dumpster. And that's what we did to get our house uh, from a house to a home. That's the painstaking process uh, that we went to. If something fit our vision for home, it stayed. If it didn't fit that vision, uh, it went to the dumpster. Now, we just read a passage that I think we can think about it in a similar way. What is God doing to turn this earth in its present form, which I call a house? It's a place where we live, but it's not a place where we fit. It's a place where we do life, but it's not a place uh, where we belong. So, if God is going to make this house into a home, which is all the things I described earlier, what's he going to have to do to bring a house to a home? He's going to have to do the same thing that Anna and I did to our house. Everything in this realm gets picked up by him and looked at and examined. And if it fits it's, and is compatible with his vision of what he's making this earth into, which is a home, then It stays. It gets refined and purified, but it stays. And if he picks it up and it is fundamentally incompatible with who he is and the home that he's making for him and himself and his people, then it goes. It goes to the dumpster. It goes to the fire pit. They have a fire pit right out there. They burn something and maybe they're trash or whatever. But it gets destroyed because it doesn't fit what he's going to make this place into. And that's what he's got to go through the same way in and I did. And that is our hope in exile when we look to the future. That God is systematically going through this house and determining what stays and what goes when he makes a home here. Now, a little bit of rewind. Let's go back to how this earth is a house and not a home. We've kind of been talking about it. It's been the theme of exile, right? First day, second day, third day. We've been unpacking this theme of, like, we're people who feel out of place. We don't have home field advantage. We're like the Israelites, but we're in Babylon. There's this tension in all of our lives. By the way, I haven't gotten to sit down and talk with all of you, but you're normal if your life is complicated right now. That's, that doesn't make you abnormal. That makes you like everybody else. You're feeling the, the exilic pull, the tension. And this is a house <clears throat> which explains why we feel homesick. And it's, not a, it's, not, it's a homesick that's kind of a subtle, like, I just feel a little bit out of place here. Like, I feel like I was made for somewhere else. It's just like life is chafing a little bit. It feels like my life is a tight pair of pants, and I, I can't bend my leg the way it's supposed to, and it's like a little bit uncomfortable. Because we're homesick. We were made for another place, and another kind of place. And I don't think you need me to inform you that this house is rather inhospitable, to our lives. This broken world is inhospitable. Because as I've talked to you guys this week, we've had conversations about uh, the ways you're longing for friendships you don't have, the ways uh, many of you, many of us are very lonely, feel isolated and cut off from other people, struggling to figure out how and where you fit in, family troubles back home, disasters you have to return to Saturday morning, This world is a place of insecurity, not security, right? We feel insecure. We're in an insecure world. We're surrounded by people at school, on sports teams, even in our churches who we compete with. They compete with us. They feel like threats. People who take advantage of us, and we take advantage of others, and they don't support us, and we don't support them all the time. It's not a place of constant laughter like home. It's a place oftentimes with sadness or tragedy or Terrorist attacks or curveballs you never expected about your mom or your dad's health. At best, this world feels like a house. There's enough things here for us to do life, but it certainly doesn't feel like we fit, we belong. So the big question is, what does God do about it? Because there's options. I mean, he he could stand there indifferently and say, well, guess who got you into this? You know? Like... You made this bed, why don't you sleep in it? Or he could have just ignored us and never even engaged us or said a single word, and so we're just left wondering, is this all there is? But what he's going to do with it is what I've already told you. He's making a house back into a home. Because he made this world to be a home, Eden was home, right? Adam and Eve had everything they needed and the presence of the living God with them all the time there. We were made for God. We lived with God. They had everything. There's no disease or no no threats or no vulnerability back then. But the second they fell and were expelled or evicted out of Eden, this home became a house, a mere house. But God never gives up on plan A. He doesn't have to. He's God. He only has plan A's. He has no plan B's. And so he goes back to plan A and he's going to make this happen. And so when he, when I say that he's going to make this world, our this world where we do lives back into a home, what I mean is, He's gonna make this a hospitable place, a warm place, a place full of laughter, a place where you fit, a place where you belong, a place where you're not in competition with anyone. You're not suspicious of anyone's motives and they're not suspicious of your motives. It's a place where nobody has to go in for six-month cancer screenings to see if it came back. It's a place where babies don't die. It's a place where gossip doesn't happen when you leave the room. It's a place where people don't judge your body when you walk into a room. It's a place where you get to be you, and your neighbor gets to be your neighbor, and you're okay with that, and you're happy with that, and you're with God. And there's no more distance. There's no more saying, I feel dry, or he feels so far away, or anything like that, because God is making this back into a home and I was telling a a friend earlier the closest depiction of heaven I've ever seen in a movie this is arguable it's just my opinion but the closest depiction I've ever seen of it is Bilbo Baggins birthday party and I don't even know which Lord of the Rings that was Fellowship Fellowship of of the the Ring Ring. sorry easy now (laughs) don't throw stuff at me um so in Fellowship of the Ring Bilbo Baggins birthday party do you remember it what the scene was uh it was inside, it was outside, it was amazing. It, there was stuff going on in little lodges like this, and there was like fireworks going off, and everybody was singing and dancing. Everywhere you went, there was music, there was laughter, there was, there was dancing, there was singing. Uh, it, was, it was glorious. Everybody was so caught up in the moment. There wasn't some like depressed people over here who were like, you know, navel-gazing and upset about the party. Everybody was in it. There weren't clicks. Everybody was so pulled into the action and the fun and the joviality of it all. And it just seemed like this completely lighthearted but serious moment. Serious because joy is serious. It takes a lot to produce it. Amen. And that's, to me, that's the closest thing I've ever seen of heaven. It's a place of just unbelievable feasting. It's a place of liberality. There's a lot of wine in heaven. There's a lot of celebration in heaven. There's a party in heaven. There's happiness in heaven. There's nobody talking about, man, back in the day when things used to be great. Everybody's in the moment. Because the moment demands that much of your attention. All of you. And I love that scene. Because when I saw that scene, I was like, I'd give anything to jump through my TV screen and be in that party. And I've never been in a party like Bilbo Baggins' birthday party. I've been to some good parties before, but nothing came close. They captured it so well. Because everybody in that scene, there was not a care in the world. Nobody was anxious. Nobody was worried about tomorrow and having to wake up and go to work. It was just perfect bliss and joy. That's what this home is going to be. And to make it happen... God is going to renovate and renew this earth and he's going to eradicate all the things that don't fit. Now, John, it's interesting with this passage, John arranges this whole passage, he organizes it in two little clusters. The things that aren't going to fit, that are not compatible with this home, the things that get thrown in the dump, and then he talks about the things that are compatible, they do fit God's vision for this home and so they stay. They get refined, but they stay. The first things that he says <clears throat> don't fit. They're going bye-bye. He says in verse 1, And behold, the sea was no more. First time I heard that was about 10 years ago, and I was really bummed because I was like, what about sailing? What about sunsets over the beach? And someone had to say, dear Ben, dear simple-minded Ben. He's not saying there won't be an ocean. He's saying there won't be a sea, which for first century hearers, the sea was a big, bad Dangerous place kids didn't get swimming lessons in first-century Palestine The only people who went out in the ocean were people who had to get way far away on the other side of the world or fishermen and All the time boards from boats were washing up on the sea and people were like well Dad went out to go fishing this morning, and I've never seen him since the sea was a place of chaos It was a place that was not under control. It was a place that killed you So people looked at the sea, and it was just this image of uncontrollable, chaotic tragedy. It was seen with fear. And so when John says there will be no sea in heaven, he's not necessarily saying the ocean will be gone. He's saying chaos will be gone. He's saying disorder will be gone. He's saying tragedy will be gone. Curveball surprises will be gone. Things that catch you off guard and punch you in the gut will be no more. He says right after that in verse 2 and verse 3, there will be no more separation between God and his people. He sees the city of God, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven here. Sometimes I talk to my students about this passage and I say, when the new heavens and the new earth comes, who's going to be waiting on the moving truck, heaven or earth? The moving truck's going to heaven and bringing it here. God loves this place. He's not throwing it away. Heaven's coming here. God will dwell with his people here when his earth is renewed. There will be no more separation between us and his people. He will be with us. Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with us and we will be his people and he himself will be with us as our God. That's what he means when he says there's no more temple because this earth This earth is the temple. This is the place where God dwells with his people. He says in verse 4, there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And I love how John specifically mentions each of those things instead of just using a catch-all term like saying there's no more bad things. But he specifies it to, to push home the point that all the things that make you cry, all the things that make you hurt, All the things that confuse you will not get through this filter of grace. They do not fit what God is doing with this world. They don't belong. They get thrown out. They're incompatible. And he says, he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Not making all new things. Not starting over, but making all things that I've already made new. In other words, I am renovating or renewing. My creation I am recreating and he says in verse 4 maybe this threw you off the very last verse you're like I'm loving this I'm loving this I'm loving this what lake of fire people thrown in it he says in verse 8 and then later on in this chapter in 27 I didn't read it but what else won't doesn't fit this home where God will dwell with his people forever resistance will not be there. Mockery of God will not be there. Denial of the obvious, denial of reality. This basically means anyone not united to Jesus can't won't be in heaven. I'm I'm curious when you think about it why they would want to be in heaven. Because John also says that there will be no sun in heaven because the glory of Jesus Christ himself will be so Immaculate, so blazing, so furiously covering everything. It's like if you hate Jesus, why would you want to be there forever? But those who resist Jesus, those who hate Jesus, those who refuse to repent, refuse to come to the God who came and said, Come to me that you might have life, will not uh, be a part of this home. And finally, what will most definitely be there in heaven? What will, what will be there? What stays? What gets renewed? This creation stays. So if you have any visions of your head of God like sending fireballs and burning all of this stuff up because somehow now God hates trees and grass and cattle and horses and sunsets and oceans, that's, he was never upset with his creation. He's keeping it. And this creation is like an incubator for human life. It's perfectly tuned For your thriving. And so God's not giving that up. He's not pushing that away. He's renewing it. He's making a home for us again. So what stays is this earth. This creation, though it's purified and refined. And in a more glorious way. His presence stays. His presence with his people. With us. With you. I've been to Niagara Falls before when I lived in Philadelphia. And I had heard people say this. And I didn't know what to make of it. And then I went there and I know. You can hear Niagara Falls from a mile or two away in your car while you're driving. It's just this like And as you get within about 500 yards or so, wherever you are, even on a sunny day, there's like mist everywhere. You have to turn on your windshield wipers. It is so powerful. It's just this rumble. You get right up on the edge of it, it almost shakes the ground, and you're just You are soaking wet. If you want to see Niagara Falls, you have to get wet. Not just the people in those boats with the raincoats. But if you get close to Niagara Falls, you necessarily get wet. Because Niagara Falls envelops you. And when, when John talks about the presence of God with his people, he's talking about it that way. You want to be close to God, he's all over you. It's enveloping, it's overpowering. He's overpowering. Bathes us in his presence and his goodness. He says there's a river of life there. Rivers in that desert culture were symbols of life and vitality and sustainability. So there's a river of life flowing out of it, which means this is a place, this is a civilized place, a place that can support thriving forever. And I think I can say this too, there's a way in which heaven will be familiar to you. There's continuity somehow. Now. I'm imagining one day I'll think back to these words and be like, I had no clue what I was talking about. But there's 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 continuity somehow, some way. There's familiarity because we've already been in this home that's become a house that's becoming a home again. But it will be so much more glorious. It will seem so unfamiliar too, like the first time you go to a wonder of the world and you're just your mouth is agape forever. So this is your future. This is your future. And if you've been seeing this in your mind's eye, now is when you really need to pay attention. Because the big question here isn't just to kind of observe and hear John say these things, but to ask the big question, why is John telling you this stuff now? Why is John fast-forwarding through all of future history and showing us the end now in the middle? Why? Why? Every building project I have ever seen, what they do before they build it is they pay an architect a lot of money, and he or she gets this big old board, and you've seen what they do, right? It's a full sketch-up of the new sanctuary, or the new park, or the new neighborhood, or the new house, and it's color, and they put little birds up in the air, and there's cars, and there's little fake people walking around, and there's beautiful grass, and all the trees are blooming at the same time, and and they, those things cost tens of thousands of dollars sometimes, those architectural drawings. Like, And why do they do those before they ever break ground? Any of these big building projects, they always do these architectural drawings. And why so much effort and money put into that one little picture for you to see? The reason why is because the construction that it will take, the work that it will take to bring that picture into reality is extremely inconvenient and really messy and really costly. Um, it will take a long time, and things will get worse before they get better. So if you have a nice little field by your church right now, and they're going to build a new sanctuary there, say goodbye to the nice little field because it's going to be a big patch of dirt soon with like piles of concrete and sand and boards and scrap. And then it's going to have a bunch of ugly metal scaffolding all around it. And it's going to take a long time. And on rainy days, you're going to track mud into the church. And people are going to wonder, why are we spending this much money on this sanctuary? We have a perfectly good one over here. And people might grumble and say, why this much hassle for a new building? And that is when they need that picture. That's why we're doing this. The picture teleports the future into the present. So that you can endure the inconvenience and the cost and the messiness and the pain of the renovation project, of the construction. So why does Jesus want you to know tonight about the future? Because you're in the middle, and I'm in the middle, and it's messy, and it's inconvenient, and it's hard, and it's confusing, and it's costly. And you're wondering, what's the point? You you have got... We have got to have this vision in our minds, in the front of our minds. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. That's why John and that's why Jesus are telling us these things. Here's why it's so serious. Let's get really, really, really practical here. Here's why this stuff is so serious, why I'm emphasizing it so much. We are never merely people. You're not a person who's able to just live in the present tense. You live in the past too, right? You've got some memories and baggage we carry around with us. But we're very much future-oriented creatures too, right? We think a lot about tomorrow. Like my little two-and-a-half-year-old, I don't think he's ever thought a second about tomorrow. He doesn't have anxiety at all. He's all here. He like finds a leaf on the ground. The other world doesn't exist. He's all there. He's never lost a wink of sleep over what he has to do tomorrow. He's a present tense creature. You're not, because you grew up, and you occupy three time zones at once, past, present, and future, mainly present and future. Don't you worry a lot about tomorrow? Have you all already started thinking about Saturday and what you're coming back home to? Have you started thinking about August and what's gonna happen when you're off at college or you're back at a new school or new friends? Dallas Willard is an old theologian. He said, we human beings think about the future as naturally as we breathe. The human mind must, must have some picture of the future. And I think precisely it's your view of the future that determines your peace of mind today. Here's an easier way to think about that. What you think is going to happen tomorrow has everything to do with how you live today. Some of your... Seniors, I've been talking to you, you're about to uh, go to college, this is your last uh, YXL. Your future is absolutely changing your present. You might be a little bit more sentimental or emotional tomorrow than some of the other people because your future is affecting your present. You might be a little bit more nervous than other people because this, this big unknown of college is around the corner. Some of y'all have been running on fumes this week, actually not some of you, all of you. <laughs> Haven't been getting much sleep, you've been running around all day, you're like running on fumes and you're okay with that because your future is affecting your today. You know that this weekend you get to leave and go get some sleep again. So you're willing to get two hours of sleep at night, <laughs> right? Your future is affecting, your, your tomorrow is affecting your today. You are a future-oriented creature. You think about the future. I'm not telling you to think about the future. I'm saying you already do. What's important is what do you think about the future? When you think of the future, what do you see? We all have images in our mind. It's an image of doom. or It's an image of hope. It's an image that includes God or an image that omits God. And if you know what we've been talking about, that our God promises to make everything sad come untrue. Promises to make everything ugly become beautiful. Everything bad become good. Everything fragile becomes strong. Then it changes everything about today, right? Have we established that? How tomorrow affects today? If you know that is what's happening tomorrow, does it not affect today? It has to. C.S. Lewis famously said, you've heard this before, He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world or of tomorrow that they have become so effective in this or so ineffective today. Those who have made the biggest impact, left the biggest legacy, affected the most lives are those who thought about tomorrow. He said the reason so many of us have such little impact or effect on others is because we're so consumed with today, in in this life, not the life to come. You have to think about the future when your parents say they're getting a divorce. You have to think about the future when your dad tells you he has cancer. You have to think about the future when the person you thought you'd spend the rest of your life with says, I don't want to spend another day with you. You have to think about this vision of the future when home, your home is the place where the most pain is, or the most shame is, and you're going back to it in 48 hours. When you struggle with depression or sickness or pain or whatever it is, you have to think about this tomorrow or you will be consumed with today and you will be hopeless. So we start thinking about the kind of future that we just heard about in Revelation chapter 21. You start thinking about that. I start thinking about that and it will make your today very, very different. You will find yourself able to persevere through things you never thought possible. And if you lose sight of this future that we've just talked about in Revelation, If you lose sight of that, and when we forget that, you'll see your anxieties and your fears and your cynicism and your unrealistic optimism shoot through the roof. If today looms so large that you can't see this vision of the future. So one of our ministries to each other is to remind each other of where we're headed, that exile is ending soon, and that God is taking us home. Here's where we end tonight. This is how all of what we've been talking about brings hope in the dark valleys of exile that we've been talking about, these valleys that we live in. I heard this story from a friend uh, and it, it happened at his church um, up in Boston. He's a, a, a PCA pastor like several of us and uh, he, he told me the story about a couple in his church who were pregnant and uh, the, the mom and the dad were so happy, so excited, it was their first kid um, and about halfway through the birth, they did some genetic testing as a routine part of their pregnancy, and they found out that the, their baby had a genetic dysfunction that would virtually guarantee that he would only be able to live, you know, a few days or a week at the most. He, he couldn't survive outside of the womb longer than a week or, or ten days. And they were devastated, as you can imagine, by the news to bring a baby full term that they knew ahead of time wouldn't survive. And so the parents... Um, went through the pregnancy and when their baby was born, they stayed by his uh, bedside in the NICU, by his little crib in the NICU for those seven or 10 days. And the baby died as the doctors had had warned them. Uh, And they were were devastated. And so the doctors, uh, in the aftermath of that, they came to the parents and they said, the genetic condition that the baby had came from the combination of y'all's genes. And if you have other children, there's a 99% chance this will happen again. And so we need to be thinking about adoption or other, other things. And uh, so the husband went and got a vasectomy. Uh, and if you don't know this yet, uh, those don't always work. And uh, several months later, this husband, uh, uh, this wife uh, got pregnant again. And they were terrified that the same condition would be in this kid. So they went back to their doctor. And when the baby was big enough to do uh, the testing, um, he came back with the news that they already suspected this baby has that condition as well. Same thing, this baby will likely last only seven or 10 days. But this time when their son was born, the baby was delivered and they took their son and they checked out of the hospital and they took him home and they had a room prepared for him with his name on the wall and a crib And this father told this pastor who told me, I would sit with my little boy on my knee, and I would bounce him on my knee, and my wife and I would lay on the bed with him, and we told him about Jesus, and we told him about the resurrection. And we told him the kind of world that God is making. And we said, that is where we were made for, and we will be there with you. And they did that every night with their son until he died. And my question to you is, don't you know your father sits with you in your pain, in your sadness, in your confusion, in your doubt, and says, let me tell you about my son, Jesus. Let me tell you about the resurrection, and let me tell you about the world that I'm making, the home that I am making for you, where you will live with me forever, and I will be your God, and you will be my son, my daughter brothers and sisters this isn't little Christian talk this isn't church camp stuff this is dead serious this is the difference in you living a life of hope or you turning into a life of cynicism and hopeless despair what kind of father do you have and what is he doing with this world your exile and my exile is ending very soon and what we've talked about tonight is the home where we are being taken to. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you left heaven. You became one of us. You came to earth. You lived a life full of sorrow and pain. You lived life in our skin. You bore our sin. You bore the very thing you hate with a furious hatred because you were holy and pure. You took it upon yourself that we might have what you have, which is cleanness and righteousness and holiness and purity and love. And you have not just made us new, but you are making all things new. And you have not given up on this world, but you will put us in it with you forever when it is cleaned and when we are with you. And so make this vision our vision. Make it pop into our heads, Holy Spirit, every day. Burn it into our minds. We pray for your sake and ours. Amen.